This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Well, hello there. I hope you're having a good day. Today on the Country Hour, this hour, we'll look at the challenges of being a new mum on a remote cattle station. Also, sandalwood giant Quintus sells 500 hectares of its Ord Valley plantation to Ron Greentree. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it's probably because he was once Australia's largest wheat grower. And he's now developing quite a few thousand hectares of land in the Ord for irrigated cotton and corn. We'll hear more about that shortly here on the Country Hour. It is five past 12 on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. Australia's mining industry has a little bit of an image problem. Well, that is according to resources veteran Jim Polcock, who's worked everywhere from BHP to Bloomberg and now runs a mining consulting business with his wife, Sandra. He says compared to other rural endeavours, things like farming, the portrayal of the nation's resources industry is much dirtier. And he says companies need to get back to basics when it comes to promoting the work that the sector does. People don't appreciate or don't know how important the mining industry, and I I use mining as, uh, you know, to cover oil and gas as well. They don't understand how important that is to our balance of payments. The mining industry is seen as as bad. You know, we, the miners despoil the countryside, pollute water, get huge tax benefits from the diesel fuel rebate and it has an image problem that is is not good. On the other hand, agriculture and farming is seen as being very good. It provides a lot of uh, export income, it doesn't despoil the countryside and it, I'm afraid, commands, well I'm not afraid but I acknowledge that it commands a lot of votes at election time. Now, I have got nothing at all against the agricultural and farming industries. They are great. We produce beautiful products. But when you compare export income from the products we, the agricultural products we sell overseas, and compare that with uh, what we earn from uh, mineral products, the miners beat the the, the farmers by, by a margin of five to one. Why do you think there is such a polarisation between those two industries, agriculture and mining, when essentially they're both working the land. Exactly. Look, there are only three basic commodities in the world, animal, vegetable and mineral. Our entire civilization is based on harvesting, and I use that word in its, its wider sense, harvesting the, the world's animal and vegetable, that's your, your, your farming side, those products and mineral is the mining industry and look around you the glass in the windows the concrete in the walls all comes from mining what can the industry do i mean how how do they how do they change this image i th- i think it's as i said i think it's got to be at all levels the 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 personal level and i know from my own experience that i've gone out to uh, rotary clubs apex clubs probus clubs and given a talk on what the mining industry is all about. We've, we've got to do it at that level. We've also got to do it 
a company level. Company has got to explain what they're doing and why they're doing it. And I think I would love to see some of the mining organisations, like the Minerals Council of Australia, approach one or two of the TV stations and say, hey, look, we've got a great idea. Why don't we do a, a documentary series on the mineral products that Australia produces and the people who have got some fantastic stories to tell. We've got to lift the, the, the profile because at the moment it's not good. And as a result, a lot of young people would not consider going into the mining industry because of all, all of the, the bad things they've heard about it. Mining industry consultant Jim Polcock from Surbiton Associates. Nine past 12. Do you agree with Jim? Do you think the resources sector has a bit of an image problem and maybe it could do with a documentary series just highlighting all the, the benefits that the industry brings to the Australian economy and how it compares to farming, for example. Farming, according to Jim,'s got a much better image than the mining sector. What do you think? Do you agree or not? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Text through and let me know what you think. Ten past twelve. Jake Klein has also spent much of his working life in mining. For the last 25 years, he's been involved in copper, silver, rare earths, and now heads up gold miner Evolution, which has a mine north of Kalgoorlie. He agrees the industry does have an image problem, but says focusing on sustainability and culture is a good way forward. We are hoping to attract, and I think it's a challenge for the whole industry, you know, more talent, more skills to the sector. This is an amazing industry. Uh, it doesn't necessarily get the headlines that it deserves in terms of positive headlines, uh, and we've got to improve that as a sector. We need, to get on the, uh, we need to start profiling the sector in a positive light so that young, talented people want to join our sector. Do you think the sector has an image problem? Yes, it does. Uh, it has too many negative headlines uh, and not enough positive ones. And I think that's incumbent on us to demonstrate our credentials. Um, you know, we, we need to get better at gender diversity. Diversity in, in, in general, we need to get better at. Um, I said yesterday at a breakfast I was speaking at that um, you know, it's not only gender diversity, it's diversity of all minorities who may not feel comfortable working in the industry today. So we are making progress but we have a lot more progress to be made and, and a lot of work to do. Because gold companies are making good margins at these, at, at these gold prices, or should be, and that's up to gold companies. So I think where gold companies have maybe lost investor interest and appeal is that we haven't delivered uh, what investors have wanted. That's uh, high margins, strong cash flow, good investments in things that are accretive to shareholders, and not just what gold companies have tended to do, which is, uh, a rising cost profile and reinvesting in things which don't really make money for shareholders. Talking about things that shareholders want, green credentials is, is certainly one of them. Uh, Evolution's been able to receive a AA rating, which is quite unusual in the gold space. How have you been able to do that? We're very committed to reducing our emissions. Uh, so we signed a seven-year contract uh, for our CAL operation with AGL. Uh, that allows us to increase our, our green creden credentials and carbon credits over there. It allows us to replace um, energy that's coming from the grid with um, renewable energy as AGL develops that. Uh, we are reducing our intensity of emissions per tonne of material that we are producing. Uh, and we have a clear plan to um, reduce our, our, our uh, emissions and meet our targets of a 30% reduction by 2030. I think 
what Evolution offers, which is really, really different to other gold companies, is we actually have an opportunity to convert our Mount Rawdon mine, which is a 25-year-old mine once it closes in a couple of years, into a very large pumped hydro asset. And that, I think, is very exciting, very interesting, and will profile gold miners in a completely different light and positive light. Jack Klein, he's the executive chair at Evolution Mining, and he was speaking to Tara DeLandgraft. 13 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varasgetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Well, sawmillers in the southwest of the state are accusing the state government of breaking a promise to support timber communities. As Mark Bennett explains, they say they're no longer receiving timber despite the ban on native logging not coming into effect until the end of the year. In a southwest forest near Collie, forestry consultant John Clark is inspecting piles of harvested jarrah logs. Well, look, there's obviously saw log here, jarrah saw log debark. There's large bowl saw log, small bowl saw log. The quality is fantastic. The length is good. The form is, is great. They're normally destined for local sawmillers to be processed for furniture and construction. But timber industry observers like John Clark fear this wood won't be transformed into a fine table or chair, but burnt as firewood. Now, if these logs are going to fire, well, that's tragic. It just shouldn't happen. I know the contractor here is doing his level best, the man on the machine, to avoid cutting saw logs since the instructions come out to just target firewood. But to see these logs going for firewood would be a criminal waste. Word has spread quickly through the timber mill industry that cutting native trees down for firewood is now the priority, and it started a blaze of its own. Well, my concern has been alerted by uh, a series of phone calls made by the forest products to the existing hardwood sawmillers. There's less than 10 left in the state now, and they've been told just recently that they won't be receiving any more saw log uh, through to the end of this year, which is the end of their contract terms. Now, this is very disturbing to those sawmillers because uh, they've been told by the Premier, the former Premier Down, that uh, their contracts would be honoured through to the end of this year. Now, there's many thousands of tonnes of sawlog are still owed to these customers and uh, nobody in, uh, in the Forest Products Agency, sadly, nor the Minister's office has been able to explain to someone like myself why this change of direction. Three weeks ago, Jay Branson who owns the Dwelling Up Sawmill, was told by the Forest Products Commission the contract to supply him with saw logs was stopping immediately. I did have a contract for um, approximately 5,000 tonne a year and um, as the announcement said at the time that that contract would be fulfilled till the end of December. Three weeks ago we've been told verbally that we're not going to get any more saw logs for December. So um, we budgeted upon there being some form of disruptions because of the downturn in the industry, but uh, did not budget upon it being five months that it would cease. There's only a handful of mills still operating in the state. Most have taken a payout from the government to stop their operations ahead of the official cut-off on December 31 this year. It comes after former Premier Mark McGowan moved to ban logging in native forests almost two years ago. At the time of making the announcement, the Premier said that current contractual obligations would be honoured through to the end of 2023. 
Adele Farina is the CEO of the Forest Industries Federation of WA and she's accused the Minister for Forestry, Jackie Jarvis, of breaking a promise. Now we hear that the government has changed its uh, decision, is reneging on those commitments that it's given to the industry and has directed um, contractors to focus on firewood production rather than um, sawlog production. This means that sawmills are effectively being starved of any supply between now and the end of uh, this year, which effectively has brought forward the ban on native forestry. Minister Jarvis has rejected the concerns. She declined an interview with the ABC, instead issuing a statement which says that sawmills signed a deed of contract that stated their log supply would stop once they start receiving compensation payments to transition out of the industry. Gavin Butcher, uh, look I used to be the Director of Operations at the Forest Products Commission, have retired for a couple of years. We're at the end of the uh, current forest management plan. The capacity to supply wood from the forest is diminishing rapidly because contractors are leaving the industry actively, the government's paid them to go, and the capacity to meet commitments is limited. The government appear to be worried that they're running out of firewood and so they're now prioritising firewood over other products. They're not supplying sawmills, and yet sawlogs are being produced. These are assets of the state that should be going to the best possible use. In the future, the government claimed that they want an industry based on ecological thinning and based on uh, clearing from mine site, but they're not promoting the survival of that industry. That industry still needs logs between now and the start of the new plan, and keep the mills uh, working keep them operating until the new plan comes into place, is critical if they're going to have an industry at all in the future. A new forest management plan due to commence in 2024 is currently being considered by the EPA. The ABC Great Southern reporter Mark Bennett ending that story. It's 19 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Earlier in the hour, talking about the image of the mining sector and a few players saying that the industry really does have an image problem and it really needs to be more promoting itself in terms of the value it brings to the Australian economy and more work needs to go into promoting the work that the sector does. And it was pointed out that, you know, the farming sector has a better image than the resources sector and I wondered if you agreed with that. On the text, this from Jack, mining industries beware. What happens when you lose your social licence Look what happened to live export. And this too, farming used to have a reputation of being a clean, green Australia. Now farming and farmers are now treated by the general population, especially by city folk, as white murdering trash, which could not be further from the truth. Let me know your thoughts. 0448 922604. Text through and let me know. 20 past 12. To the state's Kimberley region now, where sandalwood giant Quintus has offloaded 500 hectares of its Ord Valley plantation, selling the land to Ron Greentree. Now, Ron Greentree was once Australia's largest wheat grower and is currently in the process of developing 5,000 hectares of land in the Ord Irrigation Scheme for irrigated cotton and corn. CEO of Quintus, Richard Henfrey, says the sale which went through at just over $7.6 million, was very opportunistic. 
land values are quite strong at the moment and we've got uh, a year or two to go before we complete harvesting on that block and we had an opportunity to sell it um, now and, and lease, it, lease it back for the last, uh, the last couple of years. And it made sense for us to do that and obviously made sense for the buyer because they get to remediate the land in the way that they want to for their, um, for their next crop. So it was just a good, uh, a good deal from both sides, I think. And 517 hectares is a, a significant amount of, of plantation. Can you put that in context for someone listening compared to your overall amount of land in Kununurra Resort Valley? Yeah, so, so in, across the whole estate, which goes across uh, WA, the Territory and Queensland, we have about 11,000 hectares. So it's a bit less than 5% of our estate. In the ord, that numbers that number will be around uh, around three thousand three thousand five hundred. So it's it's a it's a reasonable chunk of land, but again, it's um it's not coming out of the managed estate at this stage. Any other Quintus land on the market as we speak? Um, well, as I say, I think we're we're open we're open. Um, so we're uh, you know, we're always we're always uh, looking for opportunities, particularly when values are high. So so um, not not specifically, but uh, we, we we're sort of in discussions with some some people about some parcels of land, but uh, we're not marketing anything actively at the moment. When you're talking about land values being high, can you put in context for that? This sale went through for seven point. Six seven five million. You made a sale last year of an NT plantation. August last year. What does this recent sale compare to to that sale then? Uh, I'd have to have a look. I think it's probably on a, on a per hectare on a per hectare basis. It's probably a little bit higher, but uh, yeah, the same order of magnitude. What do you put that down to? That increase in land value. Well, the mar- the markets are quite different um, between the territory and the ord, and both those both those um, parcels of land were sort of irrigated land. So, um, you know, water water comes at quite a premium in in the territory. The ord, you know, the soil is very different. The crop opportunities are quite different, um, and obviously, I think I think and I'm not an expert in this, but I think a lot of the interest at the moment is. Um, is because there's a lot of there's a lot of interest in planting cotton with the new gin going in. So as I say, we are seeing a bit of uh, you know, a bit of inbound uh, interest in in our in our land assets, and we're prepared to sort of look at those those opportunities on a case by case basis. But it seems to be cotton. That's not. I don't know if that's what uh, if that's what's going to happen to Voyager. But as I say, there seems to be a lot of cotton going in. What about Indian sandalwood oil prices? What are they doing at the moment? Yeah, look, um, I, I would maybe take half a step back. And the, the market is quite challenged at the moment. But where we're really seeing the challenge is in the sales of the harvest produce. So most of the plantations that we're harvesting at the moment, certainly in, in Kananara, they're, they're um, MIS plantations, which means they were sold to retail investors uh, as managed investment schemes. And when those plantations are harvested, the produce, the unprocessed wood, comes to a open tender, and the values that have been achieved in those tenders have uh, have fallen quite significantly over the last sort of three years. That's related to a number of things, some of which are about the the end user demand for sandalwood oil and processed sandalwood products. Some of which is just um, the difficulty of buying produce in in a place like Kununurra where it costs quite a lot of money to to collect and and transport uh, away from away from Kununurra the valuable part of the of the tree is is the heartwood it represents only about 20% of the um of the mass that's sold at auction and obviously we've had a 
ban on trade of timber between or ban of exports of timber from Australia to China. And I think that's influenced the, um, the outcomes of the tenders as well. So certainly over the last three years, the price achieved for the um, harvest produce from the MIS schemes uh, has fallen quite significantly. And I think that's been, that's been quite a challenge. How much of a drop? Can you put a figure to that drop? Uh, not off the top of my head, but um, you know, probably you know, very significant. I mean, it depends how far you go back. Certainly, over the I've I've been in the role for three years, and over that time, it's probably come down by about fifty percent. Wow! We saw last year Quintus planted their first new trees out on their mm-hmm. pack saddle uh, area for the first time in the last five years. That happened last year. There's a record yes. harvest in in twenty twenty one. Have you got any plans to develop any more of your plantations in the Ord Valley? Uh, so there's no current plans to plant more plantations, but obviously we're always, you know, we're always investing in the management and, and optimising the performance of the plantations that we've got. So that's really the focus at the moment. And look, you know, I, I would say this is a this is a young industry. So the fact that the prices are down at, at tender is probably just a question of us working to to marry demand and supply. So the reason we're not planting right now is that we can see plenty of supply coming through for the next uh, the next 15 years to meet the current demand, but I'm sure within a few years we'll need to plant again. CEO of Quintus, Richard Henfrey, speaking to Alice Marshall about its sale of 500 hectares of sandalwood plantation to Ron Greentree, who used to be the country's largest wheat grower and who's now developing land in the Ord Valley for cotton and other irrigated broadacre crops. 26 past 12. Well, beekeepers are going to be meeting this Thursday to decide whether to continue with varroa mite eradication efforts. Recent cases in southern New South Wales could prompt a shift to managing life with the destructive pest. New South Wales DPI has confirmed the devastating varroa mite has now been detected in beehives at an almond orchard in the Sunraysia district. And late on Friday, there was another detection near Griffith in the Riverina. And there are now 222 infested premises. Stephen Target is chair of the Australian Honeybee Industry Council. And he thinks, unfortunately, the pest might be here to stay. That is extremely disappointing given all the hard work that New South Wales DPI have been put into trying to eradicate Varroa. When you say it's um, disappointing, is it is it a big concern that it's now in the southern part of the state as well? Yeah, yes, it is, but mainly because it's they're surrounded by lots of lots of beehives during almond pollination, um, and those beehives come from all over the state, and um, in some areas they may even be from Queensland. Right. How significant is that Narandra region in particular, and that that area um, that we're talking about? How many hives would 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 be down for the almond? There's three hundred thousand hives approximately 300,000 hives have gone to almond pollination and that's spread over South Australia, the Sunraysia district and in the Riverina around Griffith area. So how many hives do you think could be affected by this recent outbreak? Oh, it had been the, ten, been the tens of thousands. Um, one orchard there near, Naran, uh, near Naranda, that's got 3,000 hives in one orchard, over 3,000 hives in one orchard. And there's a couple other smaller orchards near there. So, they, you know, there's a lot more hives than that. Do you think there are now other areas of the state that will also be on high alert? Oh, every beekeeper should be on high alert. All those um, detections have been traced back to Kempsey, uh, beekeepers at Kempsey, where they've recently found varroa mite. Yeah, I think this this is 
going to change the way we look at it. I believe, I believe we'll go to transition to management. We have a meeting on Wednesday night with beekeepers from all over, or the, the peak bodies in all the states, to, to give us guidance on the way ahead um, to, so we can advise government on what industry's position is. That would be a big decision to decide that we now need to live with varroa mite and manage for it. How significant would that be for beekeepers? It'll be significant to beekeepers. It, it, it adds cost um, and also you need to spend a lot more time in the hive because you need to monitor for mite loads and then when the mite load gets to a certain level you then treat. Um, and that's experience in New Zealand. But it's also really concerning for the pollination dependent industries. Over time, when the varroa mite eventually gets to a, a certain level across the state, it will wipe out all the feral hives. That's been the experience everywhere else in the world. So there's, there will be no incidental pollination. So a lot, of pl a lot of small orchards and that that currently get incidental pollination will have to start paying for pollination. And they'll probably go through a year or two where they get minimal fruit set and that will really shake them up and then they will have to get organised and get bees. And that was the experience in New Zealand. Uh, how confident are you that it, this is the trigger that will now lead to management? I am reasonably confident, but it's not my decision and my decision alone. Um, that's why we're having an industry meeting and then there's a big meeting on Thursday and they, they're the ones that will advise the National Management Group on what way to go ahead. Chair of the Australian Honeybee Industry Council, Stephen Target, speaking to Josh Becker. It is half past 12 here on the Country Hour. Jonathan Hopper is here with the news headlines. Good afternoon, Belinda. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says he'll be raising the plight of detained Australian Yang Hengjun during a potential meeting with the Chinese president. Fresh concerns have been raised about the deteriorating health of the democracy activist who has expressed fears he may die in prison. Mr Albanese is due to meet China's president during the G20 Leaders Summit in India next month. The Northern Territory Police say a no-fly zone has been established in the area of a fatal helicopter crash on the Tiwi Islands. Three US Marines died when the aircraft crashed 80 kilometres north of Darwin yesterday morning. They were participating in Predators Run, an annual exercise involving 2,500 personnel from the US, Australia, Philippines, Timor-Leste and Indonesia. And WA police have charged eight people with more than two dozen offences over an altercation at a restaurant in Parkwood in mid-July. Children in the restaurant were moved to safety while the altercation continued in the car park. Several people were injured, with one man suffering a broken leg and another having a fractured skull. Thank you, Belinda. Thank you so much for the update, Jonathan. Appreciate that. 29 to 1. Still to come between now and the news at 1, it's off to Mouche for the results of the cattle market. Also calling into Fritzroy. Crossing the bull sale was on last week. Expectations, I must say, were pretty low, but they were exceeded at the Fitzroy Crossing sales. So we'll get some of the results from there and also take you to the Mullawa show. And imagine being... A young mum, you've just had your first child and that's the point. That's when you move to a remote Kimberley cattle station. So the first few months weren't so bad. I think it was probably the third month after being here that I realised, oh, it's just us. You know, yeah, your mates are a phone call away, but it's not always the same. It can be harder to talk over a phone than it is face to face and I guess you don't really get those emotions um, and, you know, you can tell your friends you're fine, but really, you're not always. Stick around for that story because shortly you will hear Maddie's staff explaining exactly how she coped with that experience. And it was pretty tough. 
28 to 1. Off to the Bureau of Meteorology, Caroline Crow with you this afternoon. Caroline, it doesn't look like there is much chance of rain this week in the Southwest Land Division. How's it looking this afternoon? Yeah, good afternoon, Belle. Uh, yeah, that's pretty correct. Um, so at the moment, uh, a weak uh, cold front on onshore airstream is bringing some showers, very light, uh, just to sort of the south coast at the moment, might creep up a little bit further north uh, to southern parts of the lower west of that dwelling up. So dwelling up to uh, around uh, Bremet Bay area might get the light shower today, but very light and only a trace in rainfall uh, for those areas. And then we've got a ridge, which is going to then push through and dominate the weather pattern, Belle, uh, for the week. Um, or until the weekend anyway and it's going to push those showers to the south coast and then pretty much uh, dry and sunny conditions for the remaining part of the southwest land division coming into Tuesday. By Wednesday uh, dry conditions and uh, sunny through the southwest land divisions. We'll see uh, those winds tend more easterly coming into Wednesday and then by Thursday a trough's going to form down the west coast and we'll see the winds turn northeasterly and freshen up a little bit particularly through inland northern parts of the southwest land division uh, coming into Thursday. On Friday, another week cold front is uh, moving through uh, the southwest of the Southwest Land Division. Uh, most of the falls are going to be around uh, southwest of Perth to Albany, one to five millimetres, and then um, sort of Cundedon to Bremer Bay uh, will get sort of less than two millimetres, but uh, anything northeast of that is unlikely to get any rainfall out of the cold front on Friday. Coming into the weekend, though, it does look as though there's going to be a vigorous westerly flow with uh, some embedded cold fronts uh, come through. Uh, uncertainty uh, in timing and extent and how far north and east it uh gets in regards to rainfall. Um, anything inland will just be light, but it looks as though we still sort of might have that wintry pattern continue in the weekend uh, at this point in time. Uh, temperatures, Bell, are continuing to be above average. Uh, it's going to peak on Thursday, uh, particularly through northeastern parts of the southwest land division, uh, getting close to uh, potentially record maximum temperatures through a couple of places uh, in that area there before it moves uh, east as that trough moves east. Yeah, I was just looking at my phone, 29 for the city on Thursday. Yeah, yeah. That's correct, Val. Uh, it, is, it is pretty warm and uh, some of those places uh, in the northeast are going to be uh, getting close to sort of that low to mid-30s. Morrowell, we're going for 34 degrees uh, and through that southwestern, um, oh sorry, northeastern parts of the central wheat belt, we'll see low, low 30s. Uh, so 10 to 12 to even maybe 14 degrees above average for this time of the year. So quite unusual and pretty warm. Yeah, the grain growers certainly don't need that in that part of the state. They'd really like some rain, but it's not going to happen this week by the sounds of things. Now, on to northern and eastern parts. What's the story, Caroline? Yeah, we've got... Uh generally uh, dry season weather conditions through the northern part of the state. Uh, the easterly surge that we've had is easing uh, and uh, generally sort of still east-southeasterly winds but uh, lighter over the next couple of days. They will return coming into uh, Wednesday and Thursday as that ridge begins to dominate the weather pattern uh, but otherwise generally clear and sunny and temperatures once again above average still for most parts of the north and the east, Bell. And then the warnings. Anything on the list today? Uh, it's quiet from warnings and we have no warnings current at the moment. All right. Thank you, Caroline. Appreciate that. 24 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And over the weekend, so in the last 72 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, there's been no rainfall over 5 millimetres in northern and eastern areas of the state. And then in the southwest land division, the only town that recorded 5 mils or more is Warner Glen 
in the southwest of the state, which had six mills in the gauge. 23 to 1. You're with Belinda Varaschetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Three months after giving birth to her first child while she was living and working in Catherine, Maddie Staff was offered the job of her dreams. It would take her thousands of kilometres away from her parents, her friends and a shopping centre, but she and her partner Joel said yes almost immediately. But it was a few months into her time overseeing Nicholson, a remote Kimberley cattle station on the NTWA border, that she found herself feeling frustrated and trapped in motherhood in a way she never anticipated. We kind of got this role out of the blue. Um, Wyatt was, I think, three months old and we were heading to a camp draft and we got a message asking if uh, we'd be interested in this role. It was a lot to take in in 24 hours. We were like, oh, well, this is exactly what we want to do, but not how we expected it to happen. We definitely didn't expect it. You did come here and... Your family's not here and your core friend base isn't here. How did you feel in those immediate months? And you're a new mother. Um, I don't remember a lot. I think a lot of it was a big blur. I was, I was pretty scared. I think the first initial months were probably easier than the months to come because the first few months you're so trying to settle in, get into what you're doing. You're full head down, busy because that's, that's what you've got to do. So the first few months weren't so bad. I think it was probably the third month after being here that I realised that, oh, it's just us. You know, yeah, your mates are a phone call away, but it's not always the same. It can be harder to talk over a phone than it is face-to-face, and I guess you don't really get those emotions. Um, and, you know, you can tell your friends you're fine, but really, you're not always. Is that something that you did a bit, tell your friends you were fine? Oh, always, yeah. I, I was always fine. There was, there was nothing ever wrong. Yep, loving life. This, this is, yeah, the dream, which it is, and it was, and it still is now, yeah. It still is the dream. We're loving it. But there are those things, I guess, that you do keep to yourself often of, yeah, no, mate, I'm fine. It's no dramas. Yep, no, going well. And you just... You don't really want to talk about it because you don't want to burden anyone else. Where if you're face-to-face with someone, they can read that emotion and say, "Mm, maybe not. Do you think that there was a bit of pressure that you put on yourself to love every second of it? As you say, like, this is a dream job and and you came out here feeling like you had this amazing opportunity. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, we really wanted to show that we could do this. Um, To us, it was kind of an opportunity and we really wanted to make the most of this opportunity and, you know, work and show that we were worthy of this opportunity. I think, yeah, also and just trying to show that, yeah, I'm okay and that, yeah, everything's fine, everything's fun, which <laughs> might not necessarily be, but that was kind of what you wanted to do and, yeah, you did, you put on a face to say that, yep, yeah, it's a dream. How did your relationship with Joel change considering a... Both becoming parents and then B stepping into this new role together. I think we struggled. I don't think I know we struggled. The relationship, it really was just us. So it, I think it put a lot more strain on us because Joel became my coffee date friend, my go-to friend when I needed to have 
a little whinge about something. Joel became everything. It was it was only Joel and I. So we really needed to work together as a team and I think that did put a lot of strain on us because we didn't have other people to go to. And yeah, that that was hard. Was there a time then that things did get to a point not breaking point, but things got to a point where a massive argument had to happen for things to change or things need to, needed to be put out into the open? Yeah, I don't think it came really to a massive argument, but it definitely came down to a point where we realised we need to talk this through and we need to work out what's going to work best for both of us out here. Um, I didn't enjoy being inside all day, which I wasn't, but I did miss getting out and about a bit, but it was hard with Wyatt because I couldn't leave him for more than three hours because he was breastfed. And, you know, I wanted to go to the yards and work cattle because I missed that kind of stuff. I I think it came down to one night I was quite upset and I just said to him, I said, I'm miserable. I see you going out and doing everything that I want to be doing and I'm not doing it. And I think in a way a bit of me wanted to resent Wyatt for that because I felt like I was trapped. In all honesty, all it took was the conversation and we sorted it out within a day. We were like, right, this is what we're gonna do. But I didn't wanna bring up that conversation because I didn't wanna seem ungrateful or that it was too much. So I was happy to just keep sucking it up and going with it. I think, you know, when you're living in town, you've got other alternatives of childcare, friends, to take turns with with the child and it's definitely something that I never thought we'd have to cross because in in hindsight at the time it was going to work everything was yep go to childcare we'll both go back to work and we'll we'll both have him in the night time but out here it's obviously not like that you don't ring up grandma and say hey can you come because she's 12 hours away where before she could come over for the weekend it's definitely not something that I ever planned for And I think that's why it was such a hard conversation for me to have because I wasn't prepared for it. It's not something you think in your mind prior that, yeah, okay, I'm going to have to talk about this one day. But it wasn't. Do you think the assumption was, even if you you didn't vocalise it, that you'd become a stay-at-home mum? Yeah, definitely. And that's definitely not Joel's intentions either. He is definitely big on me and Wyatt getting out and about he wants us both involved in everything but unintentionally he was yeah doing things without realizing that oh maybe Maddie would like to come for a drive today and get out of the house for a bit but I think I think in this role as well as a woman in ag it is I guess still that stereotypical expectation that the woman is at home and that's that's not always the case but it still is big in this industry at the moment. Not much has changed yet to change people's minds. Do you think that the onus to talk about this thing comes down to women? Yeah, definitely. I've spoken to friends and things who I know struggle with topics of conversations that I've had because, yeah, their their partners don't want to talk about it. And I, I do often think that Sometimes women are afraid or unsure how to voice it as well, which plays a big role in the unable to communicate. It's, it's both sides are very unsure on what to say. Men don't want to bring it up and women don't know how to say it, I think, a lot of the time. As you said, you came out here as a dream job and a dream location, like what a part of the world to be living in. Can you talk me through 
how you like the way that your life is at the moment? Oh, I think it is. It's perfect. We have everything we need. We've got our horses. We've got our family. It's, it's hard to even put into words. It's just perfect. You know, every job has downfalls. Everything in life has got a few negatives, but all the positives weigh out the negatives a thousand times over. Maddie Staff, who oversees Nicholson's station on the NTWA border, west of Halls Creek, and she was speaking to Alice Marshall. And it's just so wonderful when someone can be so open, so frank about a situation like that, because it really does. It really could help someone else, could help you, and maybe even trigger a conversation at your place that might be overdue. Uh, you can read more of the story online. Just search Station Motherhood ABC and you'll find Alice Marshall's story there. And she's taken some really gorgeous photos too of, well, both Maddie, the family, and little Wyatt too. So go and check it out. Station Motherhood ABC to see the online story and all those gorgeous photos. It is 14 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Just before one, it's off to Mouche for the results of the cattle market and also the results of the Fitzroy Crossing bull sale to a few surprises at last week's sale. We'll get to that shortly. First, though, rural shows have historically been important for country towns, but I wonder if they've passed their use-by date. Alice Angeloni went along to the Mullawa show over the weekend, right in the heart of wildflower country, a couple of hundred kilometres east of Geraldton, or 100 kilometres east of Geraldton. It's a warm, sunny day in Mullawa, 100 kilometres east of Geraldton. But today, this quiet country town looks a little different. A stream of people have driven in from farms and stations and surrounds with arms full of baked goods, crafts and homegrown vegetables. Sue Cream lives at Eridu, halfway between Geraldton and Mullawar, and she's been responsible for coordinating what goes on in the pavilion at the Mullawar show. We've got different sections for sewing, uh, cooking, craft work, art, and then we have the agricultural ones, the wool and wheat, lupins, canola. There's a photography section and then we have children's sections for all the different age groups. But she says this year they've had about half the number of entries than they have done in past years. They're not getting the time to complete a lot of crafts like they used to. Things like knitting doesn't happen very often. It's easier to go and buy something than to make it. And you don't make a lot of things that you're not going to use. So That's why those crafts seem to be dying as well. But it's not the case across all categories. Roscoe Folks-Taylor from Ewan Station says he got the late call up this morning because they had a higher number of wool entries than expected. I was having a nice relaxed morning out at Ewan about to come in with a couple of grandkids a bit after some family members put a heap of entries in the pavilion and the veggies and I got a phone call saying, what about you, could you please come in and class the wool? Or, you know, judge the wool because there was a heap put in compared to what they thought. And yeah, so I got in a reasonable time and um, put my head down for a bit over an hour and a half and hopefully made the sense of some fair decisions. So there were more wool entries than, than we had thought? I reckon so. You know, it's been a bit lean at different times and um, I got a feeling there was around a uh, bit over 30 fleeces, um, some, some good representations you know, from rams, lambs and general fleece wools. 
Agronomist Nick McKenna grew up in Mullawar and he's judging the crop competition. He explains his process. We had some really nice early conditions for sowing canola you know, through April this year. So basically what I'm looking for is pretty much the most advanced crop. The way the season's panning out, I think the most advanced crop is going to be the best. Um, looking for any signs of insect damage because there's a lot of aphids and budworm getting around this year. Disease isn't so much of an issue, but it's always nice just to check out that the canopy's nice and healthy, that the leaves are um, all intact and looking good and just checking out that the nutrition's been good through the, uh, for the crop. So you can sort of see that based on the canopy colour, based on the lower leaves and based on how much biomass the crop has. Now, Nick, this is a, it's a small community and it's a friendly community. Has anyone uh, been giving you a bit of a nudge to, you know, maybe put their crop forward in any way? Uh, yeah, look, um, between you and me and the fence post, Ali, I did actually get a couple of um, envelopes of cash this morning, so, yeah, it should make the holiday to the Maldives later this year, you know, a little bit more easy. <laughs> but, jokes aside, two men are literally flying through the air on motorcycles. We're going to get a little taste of what it is like to see a dirt bike for travelling 75 feet. These both riders are riding two strokes. So all the two-stroke fans out there... There's wood chopping. Axman ready, go. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. And the highly acclaimed Mullawar Gift Running Race, a centrepiece of the annual show. Ms Cream says it's an important day for bringing the community together. What do you think the Mullawar show means to you and this community? I think it shows that people care for each other. They're always there for supporting each other as well. It's a great day to come back and catch up with people that you don't see very often. You might only see them once a year at Mullawar show because you've now moved to Geraldton or you're so busy on your farm, you come into Geraldton and you don't cross over with people meeting them so the show's a great day where people catch up with each other yeah some of the people catching up at the Mullawa show over the weekend speaking to alice angeloni nine minutes to one here on the country hour and being a monday afternoon we'll head to muche for the results of the cattle market but first stopping off at fitzroy crossing this year's 17th annual Fitzroy Crossing bull sale exceeded all expectations. In the lead up to last week's sale, many people in the industry were thinking the prices being offered for bulls would be pretty conservative compared to last year's record result. But that's not how it turned out. With the sale grossing just over a million dollars at $941,000 and averaging $5,500, just $1,000 under last year's result. Peter Dingle and his wife Christine run Redline Brangus Stud in central Queensland and he was pretty happy to have made the 4,000 kilometre journey with his sale bulls. Yes, I had a really good day. Um, I've been coming for about, I didn't go the first sale, and this is my first time I've topped the sale um, with 9,000 twice, which is really good. 9,000, yeah. one after the other. And the, the top well, figure from the sale, how does that feel? Yeah, pretty good. I've topped the average the last few years, which is good. 
this year I've got the average as well as the top price, so it um, makes you feel really good. And what do you put that down to? It's a pretty good result, would you say, for this year's sale? Not quite as good as last year, but last year was a record year and with very good cattle prices at the time of the sale. This year the cattle prices are significantly down, but the sale has still been quite successful, do you think? Yes, I do. Um, it shows the confidence them fellas have got in us bringing the bulls. They want us to keep um, keep the sale going. Um, so they they sort of look after us a bit. Yeah, it's very good. Why do you bring the, your bulls over to the sale? It's obviously a long way from from Eidsvold to, uh, to Fitzroy Crossing. Why do you love coming year after year, as you say, for, what, 16 of the past 17 years? Yeah. Um, it's a good place to market your your cattle. We've been coming over here for a long time. We have a fair few paddock buyers that we um, deal with over here. So you bring a, um, the top end of your, of your cattle to show what you've got and hoping to pick up a few paddock sales out of it. Is that something that you expect over the coming weeks and months, is to get a few phone oh, calls? Yeah, you never know with that. And, Sometimes it might take 12 months. It might, it might happen tomorrow. When you're looking, um, looking at the cattle market from a whole across well, what you've been seeing in Queensland and then what you, you come up here and see, what are your projections then for the next couple of months on the back of this sale? It's, it's a tough one, in, especially over here with a uh, little bit of a kerfuffle that's going on with the live export that they're having problems with at the moment. Once it sorts itself out, I think it will, yeah, take off a little bit again. And what about over in Queensland? What are you seeing over there? I think we need rain. Our country is, we have a little bit of grass, but it's it's very dry. Peter Dingle from Redline Brangus, who had not one but two bulls, hitting top price of $9,000 at the Fitzroy Crossing bull sale. And he attributes those results to the bull's intramuscular fat scores. He was telling Alice Marshall all about it. Five minutes to one. Well, researchers in Australia and overseas have been funded to come up with the world's first on-farm vaccine for scourworms. University of New England's Professor Nick Andronicus is part of that team and says this is important for the sheep industry because parasitic worms cost farmers millions of dollars every year. In 2016, it cost the industry around about $400-odd million, and so now those costs have sort of blown out, and there's lots of anthelmintic resistance that's very widespread across the industry. So a big dollar value there, but as well, what about the cost in terms of animal health and welfare? Obviously, it's it's not great from that aspect either. No, that's right. So what happens, there's two types of worms. There's the blood-sucking worm, and that's barber's pole worm, also known as homonchus contortus, and then there are the scour worms, and the scour worms cause scouring disease. And so with homonchus contortus, the, the sheep die from anemia if chronically parasitized. With the scour worms, the sheep waste away, and so the worms basically eat them from the inside out in their gut. And so those cases have severe animal health and welfare impacts on the animals, plus it also takes away profitability of these animals from the farming community. And if a lot of these enterprises are family holdings, then the family is now at risk financially. 
So really highlights there the importance of of dealing with this. At the moment, what is currently used as far as a a treatment goes and and how successful is it? So there's a couple of treatments available. By far and away, most farmers will drench multiple times. And so they'll use anthemeltic drenches, which are poisons that will kill the parasites that leave the sheep healthy. Now, the problem is if a farmer is drenching four or five times a season, you're going to have the rapid development of drench resistance. So they might work for two or three seasons, and then we have to have combination drenches because we get a rise in parasite populations that are drench resistant. And so eventually the drenches become nothing but lolly water to the worm. Associate Professor Nick Andronicus from the University of New England speaking to Selena Green about some important research work they're doing to try and find a vaccine for two types of scour worms. And that research is being funded by Meat and Livestock Australia and two Scottish organisations are also involved in the five-year research program. A couple of minutes to one to the markets and at the Mushay Sale Yards, 1,219 was the final tally of cattle and calves that sold today. 120 of those were calves. Terry Birkin's been at the sale all morning. Terry, how did it go? Hi, Belinda. Numbers almost doubled this week with partial cattle making up a big percentage of the yarding and most of those were mainly cows and heifers. There were some good lines of local yearlings uh, for feeders and back to paddocks, but and only the odd pen in finished condition. With most of the regular buyers in attendance, the market on younger cattle remained equal to recent weeks, while cows lifting slightly and sorter bulls gaining 20 cents a kilo. Local weaner and yearling steers to feedlots were selling from 240 to 344 cents, and in slaughter condition up to 346 cents, while local weaner and yearling heifers made 198 to 270 cents, with one heifer in prime condition making 354 cents a kilo. Pastoral yearling steers range from 200 to 328 cents, while young pastoral heifers started at 70 cents up to 224 cents, depending on framing condition. Grown steers returned 218 to 262 cents, while grown heifers sold from 198 to 228 cents a kilo. Store cows to feedlots selling from 98 to 180 cents, medium cows up to 218 cents, and prime cows realised 240 cents a kilo. Shipping bulls made 180 cents to 330 cents and an excellent lineup of heavy bulls returning 190 to 252 cents a kilo. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service at Musho. Terry, thank you so much for going through all the details. I'll talk to you tomorrow. The one o'clock news is next. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.